Hey guys, it's Chelsea, and I'm just jumping in to let you know that this week's episode of The Financial Confessions is actually a takeover from another podcast that I recently did called Other People's Pockets, hosted by Maya Lau. It's a deep dive interview that I did all about my own personal finances, my own relationship with money, and all kinds of other really juicy money stuff. I hope you enjoy my interview with them and we'll check out other episodes of Other People's Pockets because I can personally tell you it is not only a really informative podcast, it's also honestly juicy as hell. The Financial Confessions will be back next week. Enjoy my interview. Hey, OPP listeners. Are you someone making $50,000 a year or less? We would love to hear from you and more about your money story. Leave us a voicemail at 323-540-4255. That's 323-540-4255. Or record a voice memo and send it to otherpeoplespockets at gmail.com. For a time, I had credit card debt that had gone to collections. I had like a 450 credit score. I was, uh, you know, in all kinds of consumer debt. I had a suspended license and suspended registration from unpaid parking and moving violations. I got arrested. Basically every financial mistake a person can make, I had made them. Hey everyone. We have a guest I'm very excited to bring on today because her bio hits on a few things that really pique my interest. A, she's very thoughtful about money and has a major personal finance company. B, she's made some big pivots and taken risks in her career, which is like catnip for me. And she also wrote a new fiction book that has a bit of dangerous romance in it called A Perfect Vintage. My guest today is Chelsea Fagan. She's the CEO and co-founder of The Financial Diet, a personal finance media company that bills itself as the number one destination for women to talk about money. The Financial Diet has two podcasts, as well as YouTube and other social media channels that give no judgment, practical financial advice, and musings on life and the way we talk about money today. I'm always excited to nerd out on money stuff, so I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. I'm Maya Lau, and this is Other People's Pockets, the show where I ask people how much they make and how their finances work, so the questions we all have about money can be a little bit less of a mystery. Chelsea, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. For our listeners who may not know, what is The Financial Diet and why is it special? It's a media company, digital primarily. So it's, you know, uh, video, newsletter, events, classes, social media. Uh, we create content and experiences and classes around personal finance, primarily geared toward women. About 91% of our audience is women. And what makes it special is that it's, at least in my opinion, one of the few places where I think talking about money is entertaining, but also intersects with a lot of other aspects of life that are not often thought as financial. I mean, now there's a much more robust personal finance space that isn't like Susie Orman and Dave Ramsey. But when we started TFD in like late 2014, it was bleak to say the least. Yeah, I was wondering what you saw as a gap in that personal finance landscape and specifically what you were trying to do, especially in those early days. 
I mean, basically the gap was like anyone who wasn't like a libertarian essentially. And I was just trying to come at it from an angle that was not like a lot of it was very shame-based, very negative, uh, very judgmental. And I wanted to kind of come at it from a way that was a little bit more compassionate, I guess, especially toward myself because I had a lot of money problems. What were those money problems? Not at the time I started TFD. I had already started like repairing my finances somewhat, but for a time I had credit card debt that had gone to collections. I had like a 450 credit score. I was, uh, you know, in all kinds of consumer debt. I had a suspended license and suspended registration from unpaid parking and moving violations. I got arrested. Basically every financial mistake a person can make, I had made Wait, them. did you get arrested because of the parking ticket or how did that happen? I was driving on a suspended license with suspended tags. Right. So one thing leads to another. When was this all happening? Like how old were you when this was happening? Between the ages of 18 and 23. Did you know things about money growing up or do you feel like you had to teach it all yourself in your 20s? Um, I grew up pretty low income. My parents have always been very diligent with money, but we didn't have a lot of it. And I had a lot of anxiety about money. Um, and I didn't bother to learn any of it. I was a terrible student. I graduated high school with like a 2.3 GPA. So I was not informing myself about anything, let alone about money. But when it came time to make any kind of financial decision, my primary motivator was just spending money to have certain things to seem a certain way to fit in. And that was really my only prism that I was looking at my decisions through. So how did you end up becoming good with money? Um, so I started the financial diet as a personal blog to hold myself accountable because I less so now, but especially at the time I was very externally motivated. So having other people watch me felt, you know, like a gym buddy or something. And it just kind of snowballed from there. But I, I had gotten myself out of my credit card debt um, and I was like, okay, well, I've stopped the bleeding. Like now it's time to like start building some habits. So just kind of through my work on at TFD and through my own personal habit changes, I've, you know, definitely gotten to a, a good place with money. So now with the financial diet being what it is with YouTube channels, Instagram, there's podcasts, you have a lot of content. There's a lot of you in there. There's also, you have employees, you do sponsorship deals. Is it at all what you envisioned when you started out? No, but I also worked in media before. I did sponsored content. I did content creation. I I have a few business partners and one of them worked with me at that company and she worked in the um, branded content department. So we had a lot of context for how media is made. And so although it wasn't what I anticipated, it also was easier for me than maybe some to flesh it out. Yeah, I mean, when you mention how media is made and how it makes money, like, I feel like I came from the opposite side of like, oh, we're journalists, but we don't think about ads and we don't think about how the paper actually makes money. We're not supposed to think about it. And that is such a disservice to everyone. And that viewpoint is so harmful because that's part of what needs to change in so much of journalism. What is every salary you've ever had? My first salary that I ever had outside of, you know, hourly and service and tipped work and stuff like that. But my first biweekly salary was $36,000, went up to $42,000 as a creative director. And then... And that was in New York City? That was in New York City. Mm -hmm. And then at TFD, it was 
and then I've been at $90,000 for the past several years. So you just mentioned you pay yourself $90,000 a year. And I've seen you talk about how you do that for many reasons, but one of the big ones is just so that your salary is not out of line with your employees because you don't believe in gross executive compensation. Would your $90,000 a year salary be possible for you to live the way you do in New York City if you weren't married, do you think? Hell no. Um, a couple things. One, I my base salary is 90000 Last year it was 90000 period because I didn't take any kind of like bonuses or commissions. The year before, I think I had like a little bit of a bonus and I ended up closer to 100000 This year I'll probably end up at one fifteen, depending on where the bonuses land. But all of our employees, for the most part, are on some kind of base plus variable. Would it be possible without my husband? No, absolutely not. I mean, I could live on 90000 in, in New York City. Many people do. I wouldn't have the lifestyle that I have because we are a dual income household. But I've always been very transparent. Like I couldn't have, you know, forgone a, a salary, started a business, made the investments that I made in, in the early days if it weren't for my husband having a stable income and also health insurance. That was a really Mm -hmm. big uh, deciding factor at the beginning of it. But I will say, I mean, to your point about staying somewhat in line with employees, I mean, we like all of our employee compensation to be within a very narrow bell curve. Uh, There's some variables there, but for the most part, it's, it's really in line with each other. And I think I don't think a lot of business owners get asked about what they pay their employees. Like, even if you're asking about what their income is, what their net worth is, like, what are they paying their employees? And I think that that is a question that a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs are really able to skate by on. Mm -hmm. And that's why, like, for me, the biggest motivation in talking about it is because I want it to be shameful that other employers are not talking about these things, because I know for a fact, a lot of people in my industry are paying themselves very handsomely and paying the people that work for them pennies. And what are your employees paid? So it runs the gamut. And like I said, they're all variable, but it's within a range of like 85,000 total take home to like, I think the top is going to be somewhere between 150 and 200. So in any given year, depending on where bonuses are, some of your employees could make more than you do. Every year they do. I'm usually somewhere between the fourth and the sixth highest paid person at the company, usually. Can you give me any sense of what your husband does for work and what kind of money he makes? Yeah. So he works in tech and I did not get any consent to share his exact salary. And I don't want to like fumble his bag in terms of negotiating for himself, but he makes between 150 dollars and $200,000 a year. I personally am someone who's big on salary transparency and stuff. I do think there are some very legitimate reasons and situations why I don't think that all people should be posting on Twitter all day what they make. Have you found, like you mentioned with the situation with your husband, what are the cases in which it is smart and or necessary to not share publicly what you're making? Anytime you're negotiating against yourself, as in the case of sharing a rate card, if you're charging clients money, I think sharing on a more individual basis can often be really helpful. Like if, for example, you're thinking of unionizing or you want to negotiate as a group for, you know, pay pay increases, I think that's almost always valuable um, and has a lot of tangible benefits. I think broadcasting it is a luxury that's not necessarily affordable to everyone because in that case, you are negotiating against yourself.
I feel like in any household, the conversation around money is very much a joint thing. Even if one person's more the financial expert or interested in it, it is very much a two-way street. How do you and your husband deal with money conversations? Like, He's extremely offline. Uh, he has like no internet present whatsoever. He has no idea what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't, he doesn't consume most of my content and I wouldn't want him to. So he's pretty yeah. unaware. Um, <laughs> I sort of started writing on the internet in an era where it was really not as frowned upon as it should be to tell other people's shit online. Like people would talk about exes and friends and stuff like that. And it was a lot more normalized, I feel like. And the early tens, um, than it is now, but I always like, I regretted the times that I did that when I talked about other people. And for example, I don't post any of my friends or my family, any children, anything like that on my social media, because a, I feel like it's not for me to decide, but also be like, these other people didn't choose to have an audience. They didn't choose to have an online platform. And so I try to keep that in mind when I'm talking about my husband and making sure that I'm only saying things that he would be comfortable with. Um, and as far as money conversations go, we have very separate finances. We have some shared things, but the vast majority of our finances are separated. And so for the most part, if I want to buy something, I buy it. If he wants to buy something, he buys it. We have a mortgage. It's like our one major expense. Mm -hmm. So it's really not a topic of conversation. And that's what we stress the most at TFD is like the whole point of getting good with money is that you don't have to think about it that much. What do you do for your personal budgeting? Or do you use a certain system? Mint. But again, yeah. like it's been so long that our spending is like under our, like I, you know, we, we contribute to our retirement. We like, we have, we bought it. We wanted to buy a house. We bought one other than just steadily saving for retirement. There's not that much thinking that goes into it. And as long as you're living below your means, like I'm investing a lot right now in my novel and that's a big expense, but that's just a business case that I draft up. And like, basically like when I was deciding to make that investment, I just like built a really fancy spreadsheet. Like my husband made me help me put it together. Uh, cause he does them a lot for work. Um, it has like essentially like all your different expenses, all of the variables in terms of the revenue possibilities. Um, you put various levels of like, I'm 90% sure this will happen. I'm 50% sure, 10% sure, et cetera. And you just do a bunch of different calculations essentially to see, like, for example, I know how many copies of my book I have to sell to break even. I, I haven't finished investing because I'm going to be spending marketing dollars from now through the summer, basically. But in total, it'll be somewhere between 30 and 35, maybe all the way up to $40,000. And I'll have to sell somewhere around 6,500 copies to recoup that investment. And then anything past that is profit. You've talked about self-publishing your latest book. And you talk about, which I appreciate, getting some mixed feedback when you tried to go to the traditional publishers <laughs> who didn't want to take it on or thought it didn't fit into a certain category. Can you talk about that and the decision to move forward in the way you did? Yeah. So for those who aren't familiar with this part of publishing, and why would anyone be? I certainly wasn't before I really got into this. Uh, so there's two pretty distinct genres that my book could kind of be considered. In. And interestingly, a lot of the booksellers that are populating it are slotting it into different categories based on their mm. own criteria. But essentially... That's interesting. Uh, yeah, it's, it actually is really interesting to watch how that's happening. be interesting to see like a, a visual of like, oh, this is where it ended up. Oh, you said that it wouldn't sell in this, but it did. Oh, trust me, <laughs> those visuals will be coming. Um, but uh, So basically there's women's contemporary fiction and there's romance. Women's contemporary fiction is front of the bookstore. It's 
more prestigious. It's, you know, you'll often see titles like this getting picked for like Reese's Book Club. And I love those books. I read a ton of them. And then there's romance, which is genre fiction, like mysteries, thrillers, horror, that kind of thing, sci-fi. And those are in the back of the bookstore. And they're really kind of separated out by category. They're typically released as trade paperbacks first. Some of them now more and more are getting released as hardcovers. But although they are one of the most lucrative genres of publishing, uh, I think it's mystery and then romance are the two most lucrative. They're really not perceived in the same way. They're not taken as yeah. seriously. They're it's not- a grocery store book or... Exactly. Yeah. And they're not invested in the same way. Mm-hmm. My agent only sent it out to a few editors when we were considering publishing traditionally. And essentially the feedback that I heard almost universally was, um, this is between women's contemporary and romance. We need to make it one or the other. But when I ended up finding the editor that I ended up working with on an independent basis, like when she received it, like within like 24 hours, she was like... I love this, who's considering, like, which is very, very fast. Um, so I, that kind of gave me the, cause I didn't, I didn't want to go rogue in the sense of like, you don't want to do something on your own when everyone's like, it's bad. And you're like, no, it's good. It's like, maybe they're right. But as long <laughs> as someone with taste that I respect right. was like, I right. get it. Is there any world in which you want to keep writing and maybe write books full time and move in that direction? Or do you like this balance you have of running this business and writing on the side? I would prefer to keep it like this. I don't think I ever want to write full time. I don't know if I'll do TFD forever, but I would always Mm -hmm. have something else that is going on because I think writing is a very solitary activity, even if you're working with a team, which is not overly appealing. But also I think creatives whose full-time occupation is their own creative output in a vacuum. Some people deal with it very well. I think that it's can be quite stressful and I think it would give mm-hmm. me a lot of anxiety. I like that the work that I do it could in my, ruin it for you where yeah. it's like not enjoyable because now it's your work. And yeah. you also really live and die by people's opinions of you. Yes. Whereas if you work in a more collaborative capacity, that kind of pressure is shared, which is really enjoyable. So how does the financial diet make money? Primarily through branded partnerships, but also through direct sales like events, downloadables, classes, things like that. Would you ever sell the financial diet? Probably not. Uh, I talk about this sometimes with my team and my partners. We've been approached several times um, and have gotten well into the process of due diligence once. Um, Mm. The way we run our business is deeply unappealing to an investor. (laughs) We pay people too much. Because you pay people well. (laughs) We pay people too much. We we, act humanely. (laughs) No, but it's true. Like we have aggressive maternity leave. We have six weeks PTO. We do a four-day work week. We don't, and we don't prioritize profit, which is the motive of an investor. What do you think the financial diet is worth? So last time it was evaluated, I think it was like just under 5 million, but our revenue is higher now. So I'd imagine it might be more than that. And so what amount could you take home like annually for yourself from the financial diet if you were less of an altruist? I am not an altruist, please. I, <laughs> I really We're just a, nor- a, a good human being who doesn't screw over people. Yeah. <laughs> and it's very selfish too. I don't want to have to work harder. I don't want to do a five-day work week. I don't want to like have to say yes to every client that comes along. So not mm-hmm. having the pressure is worth infinite amounts of money. I can't stress enough. I don't say this to sound a certain way. I have. I, it doesn't matter. It wouldn't change my life. 
So have you saved, I mean, because you mentioned other people in your line of work have reaped a ton of profit from their work and they don't pay their employees particularly well. Has having this business led you down a path of financial freedom and you have a ton of money in your savings account? I mean, I, I think I'm probably better off than I would have been at another job, I think. How much do you have in your savings? Oh, God. Mm-hmm. A lot of my net worth is is theoretical. We, we own our home mm-hmm. and we paid very little for it because we bought it at the... Um, How much did you pay for it? $752,000 negotiated down from seven sixty. dollars Also... Wow. When, when, when did you buy? Uh, literally the like when New York City and especially Manhattan real estate was at its absolute lowest in 2021. Oh, man. Um, fun fact about that, paid like $100,000 less than the people who bought it before us. Um, wow. And we got a 2.87 uh, mortgage rate. So mm-hmm. we'd like to have several million in retirement savings so that we don't have to work. Mm-hmm. I think it's 4 million is the, uh, by the drawdown rule, I think 4 million is what you need to live on $100,000 a year of just interest. I have to double check those numbers. Um, but so, so something like that. Will we get there anytime soon? Maybe, but mm-hmm. we're saving aggressively enough now that like, for example, my husband was had to leave the country for two years because of immigration issues. And he eventually decided after he like could not do it anymore and nor could I um, to come back to the US and wait out his green card here. But he had no work authorization. So for basically all of 2022, he could not work legally. And like, we just draw, we just draw, drew on savings. But Where is he from? He's French. And you mentioned the drawdown rule. Oh my God. I'm like really embarrassed that I can't quote this off the top of my head, but basically it's a lot of people who are trying to retire early, for example, use this mathematical equation where like you have a certain number invested in the market and with like an average 7.5% return, you are able to just take the interest out every year and live on that and never actually detract from the principal. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's like the best way to live if you're living like FIRE, for example. Mm-hmm. And FIRE is what? Financial independence slash retiring early. So you guys are married and I think a lot of people might think, oh, so you get married and then both spouses like can work in whatever country and now you're done. It's not like that. Even though you're married, he couldn't just work in the U.S. forever. Being married means you get to apply for your green card. It doesn't mean Mm -hmm. you get it. And um, the Trump administration was very, very, very strict on immigration. And Mm -hmm. I guess the mandate was refuse as many as possible. I take pains to say he was not kicked out of the country because he could have stayed, but he lost his work authorization. Mm -hmm. And we basically just talked about it. And it was like two days before lockdown started in in March 2020. So it looked like it was not going to be a very fun spring anyway. So we were like, and his company was French. So he was able to keep his contract going and just transferred mm. to the Paris office. So he left uh, for two years total. He was gone and we just did visits back and forth as soon as we could. But that is a misconception that just because you're married, you get your papers. You do not. Yeah. And you said you're aggressively saving. What does that look like exactly? Okay. So <laughs> I, it's it's a weird time right now because I am investing so heavily in my book. But when I'm saving each year, in a good year, I'll be able to save probably like $30,000. Let's talk about quickly home buying because (laughs) most everyone loves a real estate conversation. Um, 
how did you, how much, like, how much did you have to put down in your down payment for your house? How long did it take you to save for that? How did you go into the whole home buying process? So we, we only ever looked at one home. It like, I saw it as soon as it went online. I went to go see it that day. I, we put our offer in that day. So you knew exactly what you wanted going in. So once you saw it, you're like, I know. That's it. Yeah. 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 Um, there's not a ton of housing stock in the area that we live in. It's a fairly small neighborhood. So we saw it, we put an offer in that day. So my husband was in town as a tourist the day I went to go see it. I believe he was with me then, but he was mostly out of the country during the whole process. And we're in a co-op, mm-hmm. so you have to get approved by the co-op board, oh, right. um, which is like a whole extra layer of home buying that most home buyers don't have to go through because co-ops are pretty unique to New York City. So do you basically have to be liked by this board that gets to say yay or nay? I mean, <laughs> what, what does it mean? <laughs> you have to be liked. <laughs> so for people who don't know, co-op, like it's a, it means that it's, Technically, there's a piece of it owned by everybody in the building or like, why is there this board that gets to say yay or nay? So the way a co-op works is essentially rather than owning your apartment as an entity, you own shares within the building proportional to your apartment. There are benefits like Mm -hmm. the, like everyone is essentially like a co-owner of the building. Like the buildings are usually very well maintained. There's like a very high, Mm -hmm. if it's a good co-op. And you also get to like, look at the finances of the co-op. How are they managing the building? Are they like, how are they taking care of it? Where are they investing in the value? All that kind of stuff. Right. Um, But to your point, you're sitting down for like a personal interview with these people and they're like asking you personal questions. Like what? Where you're from, what, you know, what you like to do. Are you going to have kids? Do you listen to what kind of parties you have? Yeah. Yeah. What was like the most invasive question you got? I was so nervous during our interview. I honestly blacked it out. (laughs) But um, (laughs) none of them were too too invasive. But obviously, there were a lot of questions directed to my husband because his immigration status was so strange. Um, Mm. How much was your down payment? It was like we paid over $200,000 in our down payment because we had to essentially make ourselves more attractive candidates um, Mm. because we had to edge other people out. And we already had a lot of asterisks. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he's been in tech most of his Mm -hmm. career. He was a consultant and then in tech. So he's always had a good salary. But also his company IPO'd while he was working there. So Mm -hmm. we actually didn't have to save a ton. Um, And quickly, what is what is IPO? Uh, an initial public offering. It's when a company that is previously privately held becomes public, meaning that the general public can buy shares of it on the open stock market. So basically Mm -hmm. people who worked at that company before um, often will have uh, stock options that they can essentially now realize the value of once it is traded on the open market. So again, most of it came from that. You mentioned you were low income growing up. What did that look like? What did your parents do for a living? How do you define what that is? So we were always like, I don't know where we were relative to the poverty line, but like we mm-hmm. we were either lower class or lower middle class. Um, my father is an illustrator and he was just starting out. And so you know, not earning a lot of money. My mother has always been a public school teacher, but at the time she was staying at home with me. Um, so there's just like, was not a lot of money coming in. And my parents also had to support relatives. So there just really was not a lot to go around. You mentioned that your credit score, when you ruined your credit in your early 20s, was like in the 400s. Oh, I, it may have been lower. However low it can go, it was there. 
What is it now? 753, baby. Nice. Um, Did you just check it? I check it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I thought that you don't want to like think about money in that way constantly. (laughs) This is like the one exception though, because I had such a terrible credit score for so long and it took me so long to get all of- You're kind of obsessed with it. Well, it took me so long to get all of this bad stuff finally off of it. It's one of those things where like, I think any numerical- score can be so dangerous because it's, it's like, it's up, it's down. What did I do? You know, it, and then you're kind of feel like you did something wrong. I mean, do you feel like emotional if it goes down and like, what the fuck is happening? Or is it just, oh, interesting? No, I feel pissed. And I like, and I know I'm on my shit. So like I occasionally things have happened and I am on the phone with that bank and I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, we got to clear this up. And to me, it's just like, I, I, one thing I never have about money ever, ever, ever is emotion. I, I don't like, it's never a, it's never a sadness. It's never a shame. It's never an anxiety. However, sometimes like if, you know, I see something on my credit score that should not be there, it's like a frustration and I'm going to deal with this right away. What are the things to do to like, get it to go up? Well, now it's just maintaining my regular payments on things. But when I was rehabbing it, it was really difficult. Like I had to get like a prepaid credit card because I wasn't trustworthy enough to get an actual credit card and pay that off every month. Um, I had to be asked to be added to other people's credit cards so that I could start building credit that way. But once you are at a certain point, it just becomes about continuing to pay Mm -hmm. um, on time. Okay. So you said you were working class, maybe lower middle class growing up. What do you consider yourself now? Oh, upper class. How do you define that? Like, how do you I know that? I think there's that? numbers. Okay, hold on. What is upper mm. class in NYC? NYC is a little different. Um, so, mm-hmm. oh, okay. Uh, anything above an income level of 135000 will put you in the upper class in New York City, which my husband and I easily mm-hmm. exceed together. So that's lower than I thought it was. But either way, I would say yeah. upper middle to upper what is your estate plan? Like, where do you want your money to go if you have leftover money? We're doing hunger games with our nieces and nephews to see who deserves it the most. It's going to be like succession. I'm like going to play fucking mind games with all, all my nieces and nephews. I'll set a little bit aside. We'll, we'll set a little bit aside for, you know, uh, the next generation of our family a little bit, but most of it will just go to um, to various causes that we care about or people that are doing good things with it. You said in the beginning you were figuring out your finances, like come along on this journey with me. I was bad with money. And now you're, in your own words, you're a lot less relatable Mm -hmm. to the average person. How does that strike you? Do you want to be more relatable or do you feel like whatever, who cares? I mean, all I can do is just be honest. For example, like on any of my personal platforms, like I I don't take gifts. I don't do sponsored content. It's one thing if that's how you make a lot of your money and you don't necessarily have a lot of resources, but a lot of them, and this is something I really take issue with is like a lot of people who do earn a lot of money, who are living very financially affluent and aspirational lives. Our first guest is a friend of mine, Ingrid Nilsson, who was like a very big YouTuber. And she was our first guest on TFC. She disclosed her income. I think the previous year it was like $2 million. Everyone loved her. They're like the comments were overwhelmingly positive. And we've had other guests who maybe didn't even earn that much, but were very cagey about their money and very kind of tone deaf mm. about it. And those people had horrible reactions to them. Mm. So I think it's 
not necessarily like relatability is not essential. What's essential is honesty and transparency and making sure that what you're presenting is a a sincere reflection of your life and your values, which is something that I think a lot of creators and influencers don't necessarily take seriously. What does enough look like to you? In what sense? (laughs) Both in a financial sense and also in a life sense. What's enough? When do you stop trying for more or when do you just feel really content with what you have? Now I feel like I feel very content with every aspect of my life now. Like I, there's very little that I would change. Even the problems I have are, are relatively minimal. And something that I talk about a lot with my husband is there will be problems. Our parents are aging. We have a lot of nieces and nephews that will have needs and things that we want to support. And one of us will get sick, we'll die. Like problems will come. So I do feel like really sort of leaning into the reality of, yes, we have problems now in our case. Yes, we have problems, but they're very manageable and they're on a scale that we can deal with. And so we should be very, very grateful for the position that we're in now because there will be time for things to be really hard. Yeah. It's like this saying that my mom says, which is, these are the good old days. Yes. Like, this is it. You will look back on this. And I love that you've talked about, like, sometimes you're still in bed, but working at 10 a.m. And you also watch a lot of television and you do a four-day work week. You're living a good life and you don't feel this need to be like, I'm a CEO who wakes up at 4 a.m. to do my meditation. Like, you're just like, I live a good life that has pleasure and enjoyment in it. And I will say on that note, one of the big litmus tests for me, and I think everyone I'm not prescribing this to everyone, but it was really helpful to me. And I think a lot of people would benefit from it. Like I used to beat myself up about not being a morning person all the time. And sometimes there are real consequences to that. Maybe it's a problem for your job. Maybe your children get up early and you're not able to take care of them because you're half asleep in the morning. Sometimes there are real consequences, but sometimes we're beating ourselves up for things that actually don't have consequences and are like, you're just beating yourself up for not being like someone else. Exactly. And that is like, we could all opt out of that. So I'm seeing an executive coach now, and she she's basically like the thing that is going to help you to do what you want to do is to be more you and to yeah. not be like other people and to lean into the things that you find obvious. And I had somebody else say, like, you need to be more Maya Lau. It's like, what does that even mean? But I feel like it's less about trying to model yourself after other people and to try to find like, I'm just going to do me, whatever that means. I totally agree. (laughs) I think that's really good advice. Chelsea, thank you so much for talking to me today. This was really fun. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. Good questions. Thanks for listening to Other People's Pockets. And hey, I have a quick favor. If you like this show, please tell a friend. I dare you to text a friend about it right now. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Word of mouth and reviews really help us out. Other People's Pockets is written and hosted by me, Maya Lau. It's produced by me along with Joy Sanford and Dan Gallucci. Production help from Angela Vang. Our executive producers are me along with Jane Marie and Dan Gallucci. A special thanks to getting out of crippling debt. Other People's Pockets is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Little Everywhere. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Look for the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. You can sign up for Pushkin newsletters at pushkin.fm. Find me on Twitter at Maya Lau or on Instagram and TikTok at It's Maya Money. 